0: The situation could develop into another Korea. Mr. Kennedy confirmed an earlier statement by British leader Macmillan that there will be no nuclear testing on Christmas Isle in the Pacific, at least until the opening of the Geneva Conference next. Mm Constantly being torn between those those terrible poles. It's like, uh, well, it's, it's it's like an attempt to, to see through something that is unseeable throughable. You know, it's like, it's like you're swimming in a 4,000-foot-deep sea of Lipton's pea soup. And you keep getting hit by onions. Bouncing around there, once in a while, a little piece of chicory comes past, and occasionally a little itsy-bitsy piece of, uh, well... Uh, Maybe carrot. <laughs> I mean, to, to, to give it a little uh, pizzazz, It's to kind of get a little boop there. You know, uh, speaking of the little boop there, very difficult to know uh, which which uh, well which pathway you're taking. Now, uh, before we go any further, I would, uh, I suppose, feel duty bound to say that the following program does not represent the viewpoint of uh, Lester Smith or John A. Gambling, or John B. Gambling, or John L. Gambling, or John D. Gambling the fourth, who will be on next year, uh, it uh, doesn't represent uh, anybody's viewpoint, actually, except my own. <laughs> uh, I, and and uh, I feel duty-bound also to say this, in all fairness, that uh, if you're not interested in a personal viewpoint, you... Better leave. I don't want any unpleasantness here. I uh, unpleasantness. Yet on the other hand, uh, what would we do without unpleasantness? Seriously, if if life, if life were what you think it should be, how would it be? I mean, do you really want it that way? Actually, <laughs> oh boy, be careful, because I, I I suspect that there maybe are three or I'd say three ways that we live. One way. Uh, people take three different routes. There are three different ways to exist. And the most common way is to exist by the myth. Now, myths are, have nothing to do with Greek myths. Uh, the myth that could be called uh, basic folk knowledge. Like, for example, there is a myth that says, uh, well, uh, evil will be uncovered eventually well people live by this or they say uh... or there are millions of of myths of that type that say uh... uh... well i'm not i'm not very wealthy but the people who are wealthy are happy happier than i am or and you can take the other side uh, i am happy but the wealthy people aren't so i'm happy not being wealthy millions of myths all kinds of myths uh... a man will work in a in a In an organization like uh, where they sell uh, sweet potatoes. And he believes, because he has to, because it's a myth. And a myth is what he lives by. That sweet potatoes are important. He has to believe it. If he didn't, somehow, his life would suddenly collapse. Uh, He also has to believe that he is connected with an organization that turns out better sweet potatoes than anybody. He has to believe it. And then, on the other hand, he he has to believe a lot of things. For example, one of the great myths, of course, is the myth of love, which is a real troublesome one. And um, it's it's, it's like trying to find, you know, uh, who was it? It was Diogenes that was looking for an honest man. I would say that Diogenes would have more success finding an honest man than he would have finding a happy man, a happy person. A truly happy person. Well, now, do you know anyone who is happy? Oh, already! I can just see all all the uh, clean-limbed young ladies running for the phone to call up and say they're happy, in these shrill, angry voices. Tell that man I'm happy! Wow, down it goes. <laughs> now, now the other way you can you can choose to live. Uh, or it's not really a choice you you just pick it up you know you just sort of do it the other way you can choose to live is by the absurd now uh people who are who are bugged by the absurd who are who are in a sense conscious of the absurdities in life generally because they are not capable of anything else retreat from them and so these are the people you will see who will bury themselves in the file department at BBDNO or, let's say, the file department at even some, let's say, the Widget Bolt Nut Company. And they cut out from their ken everything else that has to do with anything remotely connected with the outside world. You will never hear these people talk about Khrushchev. You will never hear these people talk about moonshots. You will never hear these people talk about how deep is the ocean. You will never hear these people ever once discuss a tornado that roared across Iowa. These people look at television and sleep. They have rejected life because of the absurdity or the impenetrability of it. And yet, they rarely are aware that they have. And so they will write you little letters that will say, and it was wonderful to get that type. They'll say, well, Mr. Shepard, in these days, who who wants gloomy things? Well, gloomy things mean truthful things. What, what is a gloomy thing is a truthful thing. What is a gloomy thing? Uh, I was trying... You know, it's fascinating. I, I read... I, I don't know whether you're interested in this wild little psychological surmise that was made recently by a very interesting psychological researcher. And this is not an American type who is more interested in selling Wrigley gum and dad's old-fashioned root beer. Uh, this is a man who was interested in what is happening. Why are we the way we are? His uh, his whole thesis was was based on the fact that before every major war, there is a a major and, a, and an all encompassing dance fad that cuts through all levels of society. By the way, has it ever occurred to you that most of these people who are digging the twist have absolutely no Realization of the fact that what they're doing is rock and roll and pure rock and roll. I wonder if they know that. I wonder if Peggy Fitzgerald knows that she's a rock and roller. She's in the twister. She's a rock and roller. Remember, the name means nothing. <laughs> and the other day I heard I hear John or somebody giving, a, giving one of these polite little announcements of coming attractions that are going on in all these little neighborhood events, and he was saying the ladies of the Presbyterian Bake-A-Pie-A-Week Club are meeting in the church basement uh, next Monday night for a twist party. Uh, the admission is free. There will be a collection taken for the Abyssinian Library Fund. Now, remember, next... Sunday or no, it's a it's a Monday night. The ladies of the Bake a Pie Week Club of the Presbyterian Church will have their twist party. I wonder if those chicks know they're digging rock and roll. <laughs> See, it's again, it's a matter of semantics. You know, it's interesting how how we tag things. That I imagine in that very same pulpit, the uh, the uh, minister has invaded against rock and roll. Yes that, that uh, you, you can't accept you can't accept that term well this is part of the myth you see where the mythical angle comes in now the the, uh, the people who are hung up with the absurd now the absurd of course uh, is, is a difficult position to be in to, to understand or to feel or to know about the absurd a very difficult problem there now then there's a third way and this this way of existence is the least followed and the most difficult of all to understand. And that is the, the following of a logical path, which, uh, going back to the original Latin derivation of logic, has to do with developing a, a structure, literally developing a structure, a structure that is based on a few recognizable and established premises, like I am here. Uh, this is a recognizable and almost established premise. <laughs> And, and, oh, yes, one one philosopher said that when when anybody ever attempts to talk about the mythos, the myth, by which a large uh, percentage of the population exists, he will almost invariably be called a double talker, a kook, a crank, and possibly even insane, and certainly dangerous. Well, now, the last one is true, uh, because once the myths come tumbling down, be careful then you have to start a whole new situation. So, uh, you know, speaking about myths, there's there's a myth. One of the most uh, probably prevalent myths is, uh, is that people love the sea. Uh, people say they love it. In fact, I, I'll bet I can get 2,500 calls in the next five minutes if I say everybody who's listening who loves the sea, call me. Well, I I'm, I'm remember a magnificent essay on that subject. I, I think, yes, it was in, uh, it was in uh, Moby Dick. Melville was talking about the, the, ac- the actual fact that men not only do not love the sea, but the sea is one of the few things that we can truly fear because the sea is totally and completely engulfing and enigmatic. And in addition to that, it is always waiting. It never relaxes and is, is, is truly unpredictable. No matter how scientific your tests become, the sea is there. And yet the myth that you love the sea continually moves around you. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the myth that man does not love war. This is another great myth by which we live, that man is a logical, rational creature who does not like war and is led into war by insidious, cynical people. This is a great myth, one of the greatest myths. And uh, it's a myth by which both sides live. This is a myth by which the Russians are living and a myth by which we are living, too. Of course, the cynical, rotten people always being the other side, (laughs) invariably. It's a fascinating myth. Well, the other day, there's this little thing came out in the paper, and it was uh, from San Francisco. And uh, it is a wildly funny little item and I read it to you it's from the Associated Press it's about again touching on the myth Jeffrey M. Fletcher craggy faced captain of the British luxury liner Andes has a confession to make about his 46 years at sea I hate it he told astonished reporters yesterday after the 27,000 ton vessel docked on its first visit to San Francisco why were they astonished because he said the truth that's why they were astonished because they like everyone else are part of the myth i hate it <laughs> i'm afraid of it he continued calmly holding a cup of tea in one hand and his pipe in the other you should see me at sea you should see me at sea <laughs> especially in rough weather I, I know what the sea can do Captain Fletcher, a bluff English sea dog with a sparse thatch of gray hair and an engaging smile, received the press in his cabin aboard the flagship of the British Royal Mail. He disclosed that this is his last voyage before his retirement when the Andes returns to Southampton on its round-the-world cruise. He was asked, and this is a great answer. Listen, doesn't this describe what happens to almost all of us in any profession we get into? He was asked, this is the most truthful interview I've read in years. He was asked, well, well, well then, Captain, why did you go to sea in the first place? Well, it was sort of a family tradition, actually. I, well, well, actually, I needed the dough. I went to sea at fifteen, and I'm sixty now. I've been too cowardly to change. Would you send your son to sea? <laughs> I happen to be a bachelor, thank God. Replied Captain Fletcher. Actually, the uh, the sea not so bad when the sun is shining, but but when the when the weather turns bad, I. I don't like it a bit. Oh, I, I don't go around trembling, of course. I wouldn't do, you know. I don't tremble, actually, but... You well, know, I actually don't like it. End of interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of myths, this is WOR AM and FM, New York. And um, we'll be here until um i can't man was only joking what man how does he know that oh the world telegram will not admit that he was saying the truth they have to pretend that he's joking oh yeah <laughs> the world telegram has to prove its case to me other than the other way around believe me <laughs> Uh, you tell the truth, and everyone has to say, "Oh, he's only kidding." You see, that's what happens. And, and I'm a, uh, just a little, just a little trick you learn in, in life. The more truthful you become, the better you can get by with it. Because one, nobody believes nobody believes it when they hear it. And two, when they do hear it and and believe it, they have to then make it sound like, "Oh, he's just kidding," or "He's a kook. or "What a fat idiot, He's a nut. Take him out." Now whether or not you can argue the uh, whether or not you can argue the truth of what the man said is totally beyond the point everyone has to make it into a joke <laughs> you are getting there and that's why now the world telegram in its own little stumbling way has has hit on one of the great facts of humor this is one of the reasons why Voltaire when you read him always sounds like he's just joking around you know he's saying funny little things. <laughs> And and uh, and uh, Jonathan Swift, by well, those of and all those wahoos and yahoos and all oh, I just kid, Gulliver and that, just funnies, little funnies, and and, and Lewis Carroll, a little funnies, 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 all kinds of little funnies, like like you know the the funnies and, and and the poet has learned this many many centuries ago, you know, that 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 the deeper you dig, the the more the more you can become. Uh, ...as long as they don't listen carefully. The human races... ...all live... ...where time and space is. Their nature uniformly... ...base is. The Nordic races... ...hop around in continual... ...metastasis... ...leaving hideous industrial traces. The Mongol races have flat faces... ...and live... ...in most extensive places... The Hamitic races play in jazz bands with wild grimaces and wear purple shoelaces. The Mediterranean races have many graces and like to fill their lives with embraces. The Semitic races divide their time between the oasis and the widest of wide open spaces. The Celtic races (laughs) drink whiskey by the dozen cases. Each man can hold as much as his own weight displaces. The alpine races live on top or halfway up or at the bases of mountains where the air is vilely cold, but braces. The Coptic races walk in processions at unseemly paces, carrying enormous maces. The carib races inhabit upturned carapaces, eating seaweed, mussel shell, ...and uncooked daces. The Balkan races live roughly northwest of the place where Thrace is. Their conduct, a perpetual disgrace, is. The human races all live where time and space is. Their nature, uniformly base, is. Walk along, and uh, you know it. it uh, it's it's again a matter of perception. Tell them to write a letter. It's a matter of perception. Uh, it's a matter of, of wanting to perceive or wanting not to. I I think that almost all of us, if we if we really want to, we really want to pull it out, uh, have so many secret fears, so many secret not only really fears but secret shadows that kind of walk along with us. Not behind us or around us or behind us or in back of us or in front of us, but sort of walk in tandem with us. In tandem, in tandem. And the the feeling of 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 a sort of universal dread is probably the most common of feelings. Whether we live by the myth or whether we live by the absurd or whether we live by the logique. And which incidentally is the most dangerous of all ways to live, because the logique itself, you see, can be probably, unfortunately, the most colossal myth of all, you know. And so, I remember, you know, you, you have to you have to relate back to history. Uh, everybody, everybody has a a little collection in his mind, in his memory, of first days. Do you know what I mean by first days? Like, let's say, the first day you were in high school. Or the first day you worked at your job. Or the first day you were in the army. Or the first day that you seemed to understand more than was really good for you. And there is a point where that begins to bother you. I I don't know uh, how many people out of a thousand are ever troubled by this problem, but I'm sure it's more than most would ever admit. You know, speaking of first days, and I I suspect that these first days are the most important of days. Uh, For example, if you go to a foreign country, your first day in a foreign city is going to be the most valuable day you will spend there and for good reason. Because you are suddenly seeing, you are seeing with new fresh eyes things which you will never notice again. And since you will never notice them again, you will never ever get to understand them. And so first days are extremely important. The first day you met someone who became a, a, a real part of your life. The first day, the really first time you knew this person really. Those things are are, are always floating around like a million little corks on the surface of our mind, and sometimes they're floating way back off there in shadow, in darkness, where you can't see them. I remember speaking of first days. I, I suppose the most the most uh, vivid first day that I have in my mind is the first day I ever worked in a steel mill. You know, um, again, this is a matter of perception and myth and reality, dream, and the logique. What does a steel mill seem to you to be? If I say to you, steel mill, what do you think of in your mind? How do you see it? Do you think that you've even approached it? Do you think you've even scratched the surface of a steel mill? Well, let me tell you about the first day, and remember this. I lived within a mile and a half of most of my adolescent and childhood life, within, within a mile and a half of the greatest steel mills in America. So logically, I should know about steel mills, right? Logically, since most of the people who lived in the neighborhood worked in steel mills, the steel mill should not come as a surprise to me. Well, let me tell you about that first day. I remember this so vividly that it's, it's as though it was a, it was some kind of a lithograph. Even better than that, a steel engraving hanging in this long corridor of my room, this room of the mind, with lights properly placed so they can be seen clearly. And I hardly ever think of it. it, it, it never, I never look at it. It's like a picture that's in your house that you never look at. It's always there, you know? You walk in and out of the room, and there's this thing hanging. And you never look at it. And once in a while you look at it and suddenly you say, yeah, 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 Aristotle contemplating a whole buster. Yeah, there he is. You know? And, and, and it suddenly hits you again and again and again. And maybe one day you get so tired of this picture you throw it out. But you never can really throw it out because it's always somehow hanging in your memory. That first day. Let me tell you about the first day. The first day in the steel mill. I was working in what they call the mail department now this is not the mail department like here at the lieber house or or at uh, the six sixty six building or b b d and or w o r oh no, let me tell you that this is this is like being uh, a mailman in a in a wild fantastic surrealistic city beyond all your conception and and it's 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 a it's a, it's a it's a job that, is, uh, that runs, runs, runs. You run constantly and it, you're never in offices. You're running between great trains and screaming, howling cranes and falling pieces of metal and screaming, moving, swirling sparks constantly. And you run and run and run and you run until you can't run anymore. And then they say, go home, and come back and start running tomorrow. But I remember the first day, you see, because the steel mill is built out on the lake. You see, it's built on what they call made land. Do you know what made land is? This is land that's filled. The, the land moves out on, on a kind of slag base and foundation. This is made, it's, it's like an animal, you see, that builds its own shell as it goes, you know? You know what I mean? That the ground that the steel mill is on is made out of the waste of the steel mill. It's perpetual motion. They just keep dumping it in the lake, and every so often they say, say, Charlie, we got three more acres now, for crying out loud, sticking out there. And they roll it down with a roller, and they build another mill on it. Eventually, I suspect the steel mill will stretch all the way to northern Canada, like a giant peninsula, all the way up the lake, and finally it'll work its way down Lake Ontario, and eventually could very well dock off the battery here like a big snake going all the way up the St. Lawrence. I'm not kidding you. That's the way it is. And eventually it's going to be one big mill. And you get that feeling, you know, when you're working in it, like you're working in a cancer. You just don't know which. It's going bigger and bigger. And it's always being built, never being torn down, being built. Well, I'm a kid, remember. And I'm 16. I go down and I get my working permit. And uh, this is a very exciting moment, you see. And I'm going to work, and school has just gotten out. And uh, I have, I have, um, like they say out in the steel mill, you got to have a drag. Well, everybody had to have a drag. By the way, is there anybody out there who does honestly have a drag? You know, I say, you you know, is anybody out there who's really got a drag? Or is that a Midwestern expression again? You, You never heard the expression? Huh? Pull, no, no, pull has to do with City Hall. No, no, seriously. That's a very different thing. We, we used to use that expression, oh, he's got pulled down City Hall. No, I said, oh, boy, that guy's got to drag somewhere. That really means that, you know, you really got something going on the mill, you know, that the, there's an important guy you know. Well, <laughs> it's a funny thing. Uh, I, being an amateur radio operator, it was funny. Uh, I was on the air. I'm this little feckless youth, and I'm on 160 meters. And so I find one night that I'm sitting there talking to the superintendent of the rolling mill. Actually, it was just the superintendent of the roll shop. I mean, this is like talking to God out there. No, you, you, you have no idea how important this is. And I suddenly began to sweat. Because, really, it's like, it's like a little actor somewhere finds himself on the telephone with Daryl Zanuck. Oh, well, you know, you just uh, you just don't expect to do this, and I'm sitting there, I'm talking. Hi, Gil, how are you, boy? Oh, boy. You know, uh, you're coming in here, so and so, blah blah blah. A pair of two a fives in the final here, Class B modulation. Yeah, I'm using a, a, a double extended zip with 600 ohm uh, feed. Yeah, blah, blah. What do you do, Gil? Uh, I'm uh, I'm going to Ham and High. I'd like to know what you do over there. Uh, so, okay, Gil, come on in. Let's handle. Gil comes back and he says, I'm the I'm the foreman of the rolling. Uh mill in uh, inland steel <laughs> oh you know oh i'm out in a sweat like that well i don't know how to get around to it you know so i say yeah well that's a very interesting job you must have there <laughs> mr uh, uh gill that's a very interesting job you got there uh hey <laughs> steel mill huh uh well uh by george you know it's a coincidence gill uh uh, you know, there's nothing I was wanted to work in more than the steel mill, strangely enough, you know, and I've always been interested in rolls. <laughs> and, uh, you know, oddly enough, I'm getting out of school next week, and say, Gil, I wonder if, um, well, uh, you know, I don't want to put you in any trouble, but, um, well, anyway, to make a long story short, this poor, friendly, kindly man, uh, called me, and I went down to his, uh, his home, he called, you know, he said, yeah, come on over some night, and, uh, He lived about three miles away, and, gee, I was in the superintendent's home. And uh, here was this feckless youth. And he said, well, he said, look, son. He said, "Uh," and by the way, this was uh, when jobs were not easy to get. And he says, look, son, uh, you take this tomorrow morning. Take this to the clock house, the number one clock house. Well, of course, this was a name that was so familiar to me. You know, it's, it's like, say, take it to the MGM main gate say this to a to a bit actor in Hollywood he knows about this it's a famous thing he says take this to the number one clock house and uh, you show this to the man who is inside the little office just as you get in and uh, he will he will send you down to the place where you'll be talked to and he said I'll call him and it'll be all set well I'll tell you that night I couldn't sleep Oh, boy. I mean, I was sweating. I told my mother, I says, I got a job in the mill. She says, you're going to work in the mill? Of course, immediately, you know, mothers, uh, the, the mill is this monster over here, and once in a while you hear this big booming sound and sirens going on ambulances and all, you know, the whole bit. Immediately, mothers suspect that the ocean is going to swallow you up, and that's it, you know, and spit you out, nothing but core and seeds and stuff. Well, anyway, I do know, I'm going to... Don't worry about me, Ma. So that that morning, and... I forgot to mention that he told me that I should get to the clock house about 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning. Oh, well, that's the mill. It's like the sea. I mean, the mill is like the sea and like the Great Plains. You don't sleep, you know. (laughs) The the crops are taken in early. So I go down there, and I got this paper. And, boy, I'll tell you, I'll never forget it. I drive this little car I had. I had this... This little V8. I park it in the great big parking lot. Millions of cars where the mill was. And the sun was just coming up. You know, it was just getting bright. Just getting light. And there's a strange chill around the steel mill. I cannot explain this. Do you know the chill that exists around totally inhuman things like crypts? Have you ever been inside of a pyramid? You haven't. Have you ever been inside of a a great temple of some kind made of stone? Well, there is a chill, a strange, unearthly, inhuman chill. Well, I park my car, and I'm wearing this T-shirt because back home it was warm, you know. It's it's summertime. It's June. And I get out of the car, and I walk, I walk through the parking lot, and this chill is beginning to reach out and get me. It's funny. I'm cold. The first time, you know, cold, and it's not cold like that there. And it's beginning to get chilly. Well, I get on the main... which is a big concrete area way that leads to the number one clock house. And there are thousands of men walking towards me and walking with me. And this was the first peculiar, strange premonition, intimation I had that life isn't exactly the way it seems to be. Not exactly. Now, I do not know what it is. I've spent my life since trying to figure out just what it is but it isn't what it seems to be because here were all these men they were all walking and they were walking fast going towards the mill and there were great crowds of them coming back and they had a kind of dead look on their faces which i cannot describe except to say that it was the kind of deadness that is well it's deadness that is alive a dead quality of a kind of How can I say it except to say that it's like an automobile or a machine that looks like it's moving fast, but it's got a burnt-out clutch, and it stands in the garage, beautifully streamlined and leaning forward, but it's not going to go, and there is a quality of deadness about a car in a garage, and yet it looks alive. Does this mean anything? And these men were all walking and they were all wearing lumberjacks and they had hats on with buttons and stuff. And there I am jostling there with my with my knit, my cotton T shirt on and, and and I'm getting cold. Now I don't know whether I was getting cold because of the mill or because of the because of this aura that is emanated from this strange place. Well, I finally got into the clock house and thousands of guys are going through. The clock house is just that. It's the place where you punch in. And remember, this steel mill employed something like 41,000 men, divided by three, and that's the number of men that went through that clock house uh, three times a day. You see, there were three shifts. And so this enormous push is going through, and I I walk up to the man who was in the little desk there. And somehow, my idea of work and working in the mill was completely different from this. I gave him my sheet of paper, which Mr. whatever his name was had written down something. Uh, call so-and-so, call number so-and-so, check on this kid or whatever it was he wrote. And the guy didn't say a word to me, he just looked down, okay. Picked up the phone, he dialed something. He says, Mr. So-and-so, blah, blah, yeah. Okay. He hangs up, he says, all right, kid, uh, get on the bus. And he says, go down to, uh, tell him you want to get off at the number one stores. One of the guys will tell you where the number one stores is. Its number one stores, you know, it suddenly it was becoming very real. And, and up to this point, working in the steel mill had been an idea. Now, you see what I mean about the myth and the reality? It had been an idea. Suddenly so, he says, get off at number one stores. Well, I had an idea. Stores. What is the stores? You know, stores. I could see places where guys bought chewing tobacco, you know, this kind of thing, and ice cream cones and stuff. Well, I get into this bus, and there was the bus, and it was a long, flat, strange conveyance where men sat all hock to hock. It was a bus that looked like it was 200 feet long, and it was made out of a black, strange, rough, welded sheet metal. And the windows were wide open. There were no windows at all, just big squares cut out of the sheet metal. And suddenly, again, I was faced with the reality of everything is, is, there's no nicety, you know what I mean? And we're sitting on this long metal, this long metal seat and on, on on the other side are these guys all sitting in long metal things and everyone is just sort of just looking ahead carrying lunch buckets and the sun is coming up over the lake and remember it's june i have just gotten out of school do you know what spring vacation summer vacation is it was it was no time now there was no absolutely no season it was nothing it was i was in a foreign country not only a foreign country a foreign world and and i'm sitting and we go, we go, the bus... You can't hear anything. It's made of sheet metal. Have you ever ridden in a sheet metal bus with big, flat, solid rubber tires, no, no, no air in them, Just and, and riding over what they call a slag road. A slag road is a road that's made out of big chunks of iron slag packed down deep. And I, I'm aware around me as I look out through this window no longer is the steel mill a thing that you see on the horizon it's no longer even a thing that can be recognized you see because you can recognize things on the horizon you can recognize the moon from here on the surface of the moon you won't be able to you can recognize problems in Katanga from here but in Katanga you can't I can assure you of that you can recognize what should be done by the administration here but when you're sitting at a big oak table with the foreign ministers from Nairobi, you can't. And so I'm sitting in this bus, and it's going... Blah, 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 and I see outside of these windows. I'm, I, I don't want to look eager, you know. That's the worst thing when you get into a terrible foreign country or a, or a strange world is to let everyone know that you're not a native. And so I'm sitting, but I'm looking out casually, you know, and I see these great buildings on either side, so close that you could reach out and brush them with your hands, big square cutouts in the buildings, and I could see enormous ingots, boom, boom, back and forth, sparks, and, and, and it sounded like, to the ear which was not trained, it sounded like there was nothing but a continual scream cutting the air, a great, great scream of all the machinery, everything all together, and I'm sitting Oh, I'm sitting, and I I said to the guy next to me, "Uh, uh say you know where Number One Stores is? Number One Stores? They want that kid." I said, uh, "Number One Stores. I want to get." It. I don't know where they are. And he turns, and somebody sitting across from me says, uh, "Number One Store? Uh, uh, to tell." Uh, Hey, hey, Jerry, number one store, isn't that down there by the uh, number three, uh, yeah, down by the number three A.C. down there? Hey, kid, get off by number three A.C. You're closer there. Well, I didn't know whether to, you know, say, well, I don't know where number three A.C. is. Uh, So I sat for a couple of minutes, and I just sat. And finally we got to a place where a lot of men got off. And I looked out, I thought I'd see something that says number three A.C., nothing, just great black buildings, smoke and steam, and right next to me, right out, you could reach out. Have you ever been three inches from the side of a steam engine? Steam came into the bus. Oh, I'm sitting, you know, I'm really, I'm really worried now. I don't know what I'm getting into. And, and finally... I thought, well, I'll have to get off. So I got off with all these men. And the bus continued to go with half of the men off into the distance. And there I am. Well, there was there was a, a, an office into which maybe 25 guys went. And so I get in. I walk in the office, and there's a man with a guard uniform. And I said, I'm, I'm looking for uh, the number one stores. Number one stores, kid. That's another mile and a half down there. He says, it's, it's past the 14-inch mill. What are you doing here? I says, well, how do you get there? Well, the bus is gone, kid. Just go on, walk down there past the 14-inch mill. You'll see it. just right past the 14-inch mill. Ask for Hennessy. Past the 14-inch mill, ask for Hennessy. Well, I went walking down this road. And this road was not a road like you think of roads for cars. It was a road for what they call hot metal cars. Great zeppelins filled with molten steel came moving down. And I could feel the heat from perhaps two or three hundred yards away. And I'm hiding, cowering next to this building. And I kept walking and walking and walking. And sure enough, believe it or not, there was a sign that said 14-inch Merchant Mill. 14-inch Merchant Mill shipping dock. I'm getting there. So I walk up to the dock there where these guys are all sitting there. A couple of them have got big air hammers strung over their back. And I says, any of you men know where Hennessy is? Hennessy? Who Hennessy? Bob Hennessy and the the, uh, coal strip? I said, no, uh, Hennessy and the Stores. Hennessy, hey, Chuck, do you know Hennessy in the Stores? Never heard of him, kid. Well, where are the stores? Oh, oh, they're down just around the next corner. You, you go right past the A.C. shop. You see the A.C. shop, and, and uh, there's the stores there. Well, I, I made the turn, and there's the A.C. shop, and finally there was a little sign over the doorway. It says, do not enter stores unless you have a pass from your foreman. I had no pass. So I go up to the door. I I figure they're going to let me in. I said to the fellow, I have to see Mr. Hennessy in the stores. Where's your pass, kid? Well, to finally get it down to the basic point, I finally arrived in the stores. And I'm sitting there, and here's a man comes out. He said, I'm going to fit you with safety shoes, kid. I see you got a note from Columbus, You got to get to work. The stores where they give you safety shoes and goggles. I said, well, what am I going to do? I don't know. That's none of my business, kid, huh? You're working for Columbus over there. You're working for Columbus over in stationary shipping. I have no... what the note says. Don't come and ask me about that. That's not my problem, kid. You get safety shoes and goggles. And I walked out of the stores with a big pair of safety shoes that weighed 40 pounds each and a pair of goggles. And the sound rose and rose and rose and rose. It was screaming and hollering around me. I had nowhere to go, no place to go. I had no, no, no point of reference. And I went into a doorway where there was a telephone. I picked up the telephone and I instinctively dialed zero. And I, I, got, I got this voice on the phone. It was the operator, the plant operator. I said, I want to talk to Mr. Galambas, please. Mr. Galambas. I says, yes, Mr. Galambas, who is the superintendent of the rolling shop. Oh, yes, Mr. Galambas, of course, sir. She thought I was a big man. I get Mr. Golan to say, Hi, Gil. Hi, Gil. This is W9QWN. Huh? I'm over here in the 2AC, Gil. Will you please come and get me? <laughs> well, 20 minutes later, I'm in the stationary shipping department, and that was only the beginning. That day, I learned something very important. I haven't discovered yet what it is. This is W.O.